Part 1, Chapter 3 of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reisiger, at MattSkywalker95 on Twitter. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part 1, Chapter 3, The Hidden Gold. I was enjoying the very modest but very satisfying pleasures of a ride in a tram-car when the following adventure befell me. It was a bright, sunny winter's day. The scenery on either hand was extremely delightful, and I was cogitating upon the circumstance that so much felicity could be obtained in return for so small an expenditure. But my admiration of mountain and river and bush was suddenly and rudely interrupted. A lady fellow-passenger reported that, since entering the car, three sovereigns had been extracted from her purse. That she had them when she stepped into the car she knew for certain, for she remembered seeing them when she opened the purse to pay her fare. She had taken out the two pennies, inserted the ticket in their place, and returned the purse to her handbag, which had been lying on the seat beside her. The inspector had now boarded the car. She had opened her purse to take out the ticket, and, lo, the gold had gone. It was a most embarrassing situation. I was ruefully speculating as to how I should again face my congregation after being shadowed by such a dark suspicion, when, as abruptly as it had arisen, the mystery happily cleared. With the most profuse apologies, the lady explained that it was her birthday. Her daughter had that morning presented her with a new purse. The compartments of this receptacle were more elaborate and ingenious than she had noticed, and she had found the sovereigns reposing in a division of the purse which had eluded her previous observation. There was no more to be said. We wished the poor, beflustered soul many happy returns of the day. She left the car at the next corner, and I once more abandoned myself to the charms of the landscape. Now, this sort of thing is very common. We are continually fancying that we have been robbed of the precious things we still possess. The old lady who searches everywhere for the spectacles that adorn her temples. The clerk who ransacks the office for the pen behind his ear and the boy who charges his brother with the theft of the penknife that lurks in the mysterious depths of his own fearful and wonderful pocket. These are, each of them, typical of much. I happened the other evening to saunter into a room in which a certain debating society was holding its weekly meeting. The paper out of which the discussion arose had been read before my arrival. But I gathered from the remarks of the speakers that it had dealt with a scientific subject, and that questions of antiquity, geology, and evolution were involved. After the fashion of debating societies, the entire universe was promptly subjected to a complete overhaul. If the truth must be told, I am afraid that I must confess to having forgotten the eloquent contentions of the different speakers. But out of the hurly-burly of that wordy conflict, one utterance comes back to me. It appealed to me at the time as being very curious, very pathetic, and very striking. It made upon my mind an indelible impression. A tall young fellow rose, and, in the shortest speech of the debate, imparted to the discussion the only touch of real feeling by which it was illumined. I do not know what it was that had struck so deep a chord in his soul and set it all vibrating. It is wonderful how some stray sound or sight or scent will sometimes summon to the mind a rush of sacred memories. After a preliminary platitude or two, this speaker suddenly referred to the connection between science and faith. His eyes flashed with manifest feeling. His whole being took on the tone of a man in deadly earnest. His voice quivered with emotion. 
In one vivid sentence, he graphically described his aged grandfather as the old man donned his spectacles and devoutly read, his faith unclouded by any shadow of doubt, his morning chapter from the well-worn large-type Bible. And then, with a ring of such genuine passion that it sounded to me like the cry of a creature in pain, he exclaimed, And, gentlemen, I would give both my hands, and give them cheerfully, if I could believe as my old grandfather believed. He immediately sat down. One or two members coughed. I could see from the faces of the others that they all felt that the debate was getting out of bounds. The world was wide, and the solar system fairly extensive, but this speaker had wandered beyond the remotest frontiers of the universe. And yet, to me, the utterance to which they had just listened was the speech of the evening, the one speech to be remembered. Gentlemen, I would give both my hands, and give them cheerfully, if I could believe as my grandfather believed. Now this was very pathetic, this pair of eager eyes suddenly turned inward, this discovery of an empty soul, this comparison with his grandfather's golden hoard, and this pitiful confession of abject poverty. I felt sorry for him, just as I felt sorry for the lady in the tram-car. The lady in the tram-car looked into a purse that she thought to be empty, and suffered all the agony of a great loss. The young fellow in the debating society looked into the recesses of his own spirit, and cried out that there was nothing there. And it was all a mistake, in both cases. The sovereigns were in the purse, after all, and faith was in the apparently empty soul, after all. But neither of the victims knew that they possessed what they lamented. They were both exactly like the old lady with the spectacles on her temples, like the clerk with his pen behind his ear, like the boy with the penknife in his pocket. In the case of the lady in the car, the similitude is clear enough. I aspire to show that the analogy applies just as surely to the young fellow and his faith. And to that end, let me raise a cloud of questions, as a dog might start a covey of birds. Why does this young man sigh for his grandfather's faith? Was his grandfather's a true faith or a false faith? If his grandfather's faith was a false faith, why does he himself so passionately covet it? Does not the very fact that he so earnestly desires his grandfather's faith as his own faith prove that he is certain that his grandfather's faith was true? And if, in the very soul of him, he feels that his grandfather's faith was true, does it not follow that he has already set his seal to the faith of his grandfather? Is he not proving most conclusively by his flashing eyes, his fervent manner, and his quivering voice, that he believes most firmly in his grandfather's faith. And if that is so, is it not a case of the lady in the tramcar over again? Is he not crying out that his soul is empty whilst in a secret and unexplored recess of that same soul there reposes the very faith for which he cries? When I was a very small boy, I believed in the man in the moon. I believed in Santa Claus. I believed in old Mother Hubbard. I believed in the fairy godmother. I believed in ghosts and brownies and witches and trolls. It was a wonderful creed, that creed of my infancy. It has gone now, and it has gone unwept and unsung. I never catch myself saying that I would give my two hands, and give them cheerfully, if I could believe in those things all over again. That puerile faith was a false faith, and because I now know it to have been fictitious, I smile at it today, and never dream of wishing that I still believed in the man in the moon. 
And when, on the contrary, I catch a man saying with wet eyes that he would give both his hands and give them cheerfully if he could believe as his grandfather did, I see before me indubitable evidence of the fact that, all unconsciously, grandsire and grandson have both subscribed with fervor to the self-same stately faith. But to save us from the sin of prosiness, let us indulge in a little romance. Harry and Edith are lovers, but last evening, in the course of a stroll by the side of the sea, a dark cloud swept over the golden tranquillity of their enchantment. They parted at length, not as they usually do. When poor ruffled little Edith reached her dainty room, she flung herself in a tempest of tears upon the snowy counterpane, and sobbed again and again and again. I would give anything if I could love him as I loved him yesterday. And all the while, Harry, with white and tearless face, and his soul in a tumult of agitation, is lying back in his chair before the fire, his hands in his pockets, saying to himself over and over again, I would give anything if I could love her as I loved her yesterday. Now here are a pair of fascinating specimens for psychological analysis. Why is Edith so anxious to love Harry as she loved him yesterday? Why is Harry so eager to love Edith as he loved her yesterday? You do not passionately desire to love a person whom you do not love. The secret is out. Edith sobs to herself, I would give anything to love Harry as I loved him yesterday, because, being the silly little goose that she is, she does not recognize that she does love Harry as she loved him yesterday. And Harry, logical in everything but in love, does not see, as he sits there muttering, that his very anxiety to love Edith just as he loved her yesterday is the best proof that he could possibly have that his love for Edith has undergone no change. Each is peering into a purse that appears to be empty. Each is crying for the gold that seems to have gone, and each is ignorant of the fact that their wealth is still with them, but is for a moment eluding their agitated scrutiny. The philosophy that the new purse revealed to me is capable of an infinity of applications. The fact is that faith is always the unknown dimension. A man may know how many children he has and how much money he has, but no man knows how much faith he has. Everybody who has read Carlyle's History of Frederick the Great remembers the petty squabbles of Voltaire, Malpertius, and the other thinkers who moved about the person of that famous prince. They seem to have been forever twitting each other with getting ill, and, notwithstanding their philosophy, sending for a priest to minister beside their supposed deathbeds. I have heard skeptics and infidels charged with hypocrisy on the ground that, in the face of sudden terror, they had been known to call upon that god whose very existence they denied. I am bound to say that I do not think the evidence sufficient to substantiate the charge. There was no hypocrisy, but the sudden discovery of unsuspected faith. In the tumult of emotion induced by sudden fear, a secret compartment of the soul was opened, and the faith that was regarded as lost was found to be tranquilly reposing there. Perhaps it was just as well that the lady in the tramcar had this embarrassing experience. It was good for her to have felt the anguish of imaginary loss, for it led her to discover that her purse was a more complicated thing than she had supposed. It will do my friend of the debating society a world of good to make the same discovery. The soul is not so simple as it seems. You cannot press a spring at a given moment and take in all its contents at one glance. And it was certainly good for my lady fellow traveler to find that the gold was still there. She needed it, or its loss would not have thrown her into such a fever. 
That is the thing that strikes me about my friend the debater. He evidently needed the faith for which he cried so passionately. Faith, like gold, is for use and not for ornament. Yes, he needed the faith that he could not find, needed it perhaps more solely than he knew. And now that I have proved to him that, in some secret recess, the treasure still lurks, I am hopeful that, like the lady in the car, he will smile at his former anguish and live like a lord on the wealth that he has found. End of Part 1, Chapter 3 Recording by Matthew Reisiger At Matt Skywalker 95 on Twitter